Last week I, um, I, 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 you know, I mangled the quote from what Master had written about the extreme odd and interrelationship of things. So I decided the article is just too interesting. So I brought the whole article. Um, so doesn't, you don't have a pair of reading glasses with you, do you? Okay. Okay, thank you. And this is from an article that appeared in what was the, then the SRF magazine, which I think they called it East-West magazine in those days. And it was, he wrote this in 1937. So this is between World War I and World War II. Nations beware, he called this, 1937. Um, he says, why do world suffering and world misery arise? When people all over the earth are happy and prosperous, they are in tune with God, and the entire vibrations of the earth in relation with the planets are harmonious. But as soon as one nation starts fighting with another, or selfish industrial gourmands try to devour all prosperity for themselves, it brings depression. Master, uh, I'll editorialize, Swami and Master always said that the cause of depression is greed. You know, just every time they... they, they Swami just tries to draw that as a straight line. So here he says, industrial, selfish industrial gourmands try to devour all prosperity for themselves. It brings depression. So these are, these are not economic principles. These are vibrational principles that put the planet out of tune, the, the, the earth out of tune. And when depression starts in one place, it begins to spread everywhere owing to the vibrations that travel through the ether. The last world war, which was World War I when he wrote this, created wrong vibrations in Europe first, which then spread all over the earth, and where there was no war, influenza appeared. The agonies of the people who died in the world war created the subtle cause of the epidemic of Spanish influenza, oh my gosh, which immediately followed the war and killed 20 million people, while the war itself killed only 10 million. I mean, just like, mamma mia. Then he says, in the present Spanish Civil War, which again is 1937, vibrations of the death struggles of thousands of men, women, and children are floating in the ether, causing floods in America, storms in England and Portugal, and earthquakes in India. And so the peoples of the world, instead of creating more conflicts and getting into wars, should try their utmost to use peaceful means and non-cooperation, for example, blockades, to stop war. I mean, just, it's an amazing, he's not finished either. The murder of thousands of Ethiopians, this is the 1936 invasion of Ethiopia by Italy. The murder of thousands of Ethiopians who didn't want war, and the vibrations of injustice done to them has upset the equilibrium of the world. For no one can get away with disturbing one part of the world without the disturbance moving through the ether waves to other parts of the world. If people in one part of the world are disturbed, then the entire household is bound to be dis if, if people in one part of a house are disturbed, then the entire household is bound to be disturbed. After the Ethiopian conquest, the dread of war left as an aftermath of the last war vanished. So people were afraid of war after World War I, but once that, that happened, then people forgot. They got 
bloodlust again. He didn't say that, but that's what it sounds like. The Ethiopian war was a war of aggression. The war in Spain is a war of aggression. According to the League of Nations, a war of aggression is untenable. But since the world ignored the divine mandate and divine rule of outlawing wars of aggression, which came as a great lesson from the last world war, the world is again headed towards the self-created, Satan-influenced possibility of a greater world war and greater destruction. The depression is caused by the sins of the last war. Was it, what, 1929 after whatever, 10 years after? And if another world war is started, there will be very little for the populations of the world to eat. So it is better that the nations of Europe do everything possible to avert any wars. Let me just see if there's any stuff there. Well, that's all there is about what I was talking about. Fascinating, isn't it? I mean, it just, he doesn't even say, I mean, because Master doesn't have to equivocate. He doesn't have to say maybe, maybe, maybe. He just knows the death throes cause this. And, and, you know, when you think about how much dissonance there is in the world right now and just so much evil, active evil, and everything, I mean... It's, it's also, it's interesting because people are talking about climate change having to do with gasoline automobiles and extreme wars and fire dangers and droughts all having to do with greenhouse gases, which maybe, yes, but he's talking about on much subtler levels that these are the kind of energies that are actually... And if you, if you think about... Um, uh, I always come back to the music, but if you think about the incredible egoic dissonance of, of that music that is just pounding in people's heads all the time. If you think of divorce rates and um, children, you know, suffering in the way they are, the drug addiction, all of those things, you can just see this. Swami's not very cheerful statement was simply, the world just wants, the world, he said, it feels to me like people want a violent explosion. He said, and usually when, as he said in some context, usually when these great waves of emotion sweep over the planet, People get what they want. So, I mean, that's why we're here. This is the good news. That's why we're here. Yes, were you going to say something? Did you have a comment? Swami, uh, I mean, Yogananda, <clears throat> handing his shoe to someone and bang on the, the yeah. deck to stop the, the wind. And I thought, good heavens. That's in, in Durga Mata's book. She talks about being on the porch of Mount Washington and this, and suddenly... This violent wind came up. I mean, you know, it, 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 it sounded like a malevolent wind, but it was a violent wind came up. Master um, had her take off her shoe and hit it against the wall or the porch like three times and recite a certain mantra, or he recited the mantra, but there was a shoe and a mantra and these things happening, and then suddenly the wind stopped. And it was, it was an evil force, and Master saw it as such. Who knows what, when he talks about the death throes are being blown across. They, they go through subtle ether waves. And Durga Mata writes in her book that the next day there was an article in the newspaper about this strange sudden wind that arose and then just as mysteriously stopped because it was so dramatic that people... You just don't have any idea. You, we know it's, it, it's, it's another reason why we just have to play our parts. You know, we, you, one just has to really try hard 
to tune in to what's being asked of you, to figure out what your dharma is, to decide um, w- without, w- without reference in certain ways to all the circumstances, but just as clearly as you can in a pure sense, decide what it is that you're supposed to do and what your right attitude is and just hold to it. Because we just have no idea what actually is influencing events. Ma- uh, Master made the comment Somewhere that because, because, this, because of the illusion of time, things appear to happen in sequence. And because they happen in sequence, we believe that one thing causes another. And he di- but he, I mean, the obvious implication, which he didn't explain, is they don't. <laughs> this is caused because of whatever happened here, but it happens sequentially, so you think that that caused that. That's, the, um, that's how you gradually liberate yourself from the reactive process to other people's actions. The fact that so-and-so said that to me and that I had a reaction to it does not mean that what they said caused my reaction. It just meant that that reaction was there for me to have and so I took the opportunity to have it. But her, her speaking unkindly to me did not cause my feelings to be hurt. My feelings were ready to be hurt. And then she spoke unkindly to me. It's such a, it's such a huge difference when you finally catch it because then you don't have to react. You don't, and you certainly don't have to uh, personalize it. It's just the way they choose to behave. Swami was so effective in just being... I mean, it was not that he, he was never hurt by people's actions. You know, unkindness and disloyalty and other such things. It was very, he had a very tender heart. But when people were angry at him or held him responsible for something he'd done... Oh, this was my absolute favorite. There was a... There was this man, when we first, when Ananda first came to the, the San Juan Ridge, up by Grass Valley, where Ananda Village is, uh, we had, uh, we, we just had all kinds of conflicts with our neighbors right from the start. It just, Swami bought the property in conjunction with several other people. There were huge misunderstandings from the start. And he just, a lot of people were just against him and against us. Um, Swami's comment about it was that, well, that um, they were anti-authority and there was no, nothing else that looked like authority except him. So he just kind of got it all. And they had all come to drop out and Ananda was there to drop in. And we just were, just, we were not compatible. Um, but there was this one man, uh, I'll call him just again, his first name, his name was Michael. And uh, he was a, uh, did I tell this already? He was a he was, a, uh, he was from England, and he was a professor of some kind. He was a very highly educated man, very literary. And he got, you know, got this off-the-grid house there and put his big library in it and you know, lived the life of a gentleman scholar there. But he was a little self-righteous and a little arrogant. You know, he, was, he, was, he was super intellectual. He was very smart. But he, he, wasn't, he liked to snipe at things, you know, because he just wrote books sniping at things. He just didn't, he didn't do things. He didn't try to make things happen. So anyway, he was one of Swami's detractors. And in the early years, he would speak against us at county events and so on like that. And, and then gradually that phase of Ananda's development just kind of went away. And then uh, back, when we get all the way to 1994, and Swamiji is suddenly accused of gross misconduct and abuse of power and taking advantage of women and Ananda's just a sham organization and it's really this, this web of sexual abuse and Kriyananda's the ringleader and just, I mean, so preposterous. As I say to people, part of the reason 
we actually got convicted of those charges was they were so ludicrous. We actually just, they, they were so ludicrous and so easy to disprove, we never imagined that they would get traction. We were naive. Swami wasn't, but we were. So in the midst of all of this, out of nowhere, Michael writes Swamiji like a 15-page single-space type letter because Michael was a writer. And it's this huge diatribe against Swami and giving him all this advice, like, you know, given how morally reprehensible you are, given what a sham Ananda is, given your horrible behavior over such a long period of time, you know, the only thing you can possibly do is just resign and go off somewhere and, you know, do penance for the rest of your... I mean, it was just long. It just went on and on and on like this. So Swami, Swami wrote back to Michael. Dear Michael, he said, I recognize you by your name, but I have to honestly say, if I saw you on the street, I wouldn't know who you were. He said, I'm touched that you are so concerned for my well-being. I have to say, frankly, in all these years, I've never given you a single thought. <laughs> Sincerely, Swami Kriyananda. <laughs> I can see Swami actually enjoying writing that letter. I mean, what a perfect answer. What are you going to say? It's just like, I am what I am before my conscience and God. But it's, that's not always easy. That kind of freedom is hard to come by. But, but one thing does not always cause another. Somebody being upset with you may not have absolutely anything to do with you. It may be the death throes of dying Ethiopians. I mean, you just don't know where things are coming from. Somewhere in this book, too, Master talked about certain epidemics or invasions from Tomasic planets. You know, so, so you have this thing here, like, 20 million people dying from Spanish influenza, which, you know, we, we hardly know that of, of if you were born after all of that. But think, I mean, when you think about this, what really happens, the world finally comes out of World War I, which was horrible. And it was horrible for lots of reasons, not the least of which, you know, they used mustard gas on people. And so people came home with weird crippling ailments and, and just terrible things, just terrible and then there's the Spanish influenza. So you've managed to live through this horror, and then twice as many people are killed by this flu. So it's, I'm sure people just had a feeling like, will this never end? You know, and then gradually it pulls itself together, and then you have the Depression comes in 1929. But then, but Master, it's interesting how he said, you know, there was this aversion to war, but then somebody was aggressive against that, and then people started forgetting. And, you know, now we're very far away from... It. We just don't know what's going to happen. I don't, I, I've realized that I'm, I've become like Swami, that I'm always talking about the end of the world. Swamiji harped on the theme of difficult times ahead so often that we all began to wish that he would talk about something else. I mean, it had to be said. People actually objected. Why does he have to talk about it? I said to someone, look, Swami was there when Master spoke about it with, in, in terms of dire warning in 1951 and 52 with the sense that it was going to happen. He was speaking on Sunday and it was going to happen on Monday. Now, how can Swami not feel that he has an obligation to, to, to convey to people the same concern that his guru conveyed, conveyed just because people would rather not hear it? I mean, I feel a little bit the same way because I tend to mention it really often. Partly to my mind, it seems inevitable. <laughs> and also it, 
it's an incentive. It's a serious incentive to, and, and even if even if nothing ever happens, I mean, Master spoke in 1952, and we're 70 years later, and and even though there's been, God knows, a lot of chaos, nothing, nothing of global involvement on the scale that Master told us we may yet experience, which is, you know, there's a lot of crazy people with nuclear weapons, you know, and that's that's such an obvious thing that could happen, but who knows? And death is not such a big problem. I mean, we all are going to die, and as Swami said, once you're out of your body, I mean, the instant you're out of your body, it just doesn't matter anymore. The, the body's gone, and you're into the astral world, and you see it from the astral world. That doesn't mean trauma doesn't continue, um, and that you don't have karma, that karma doesn't continue. But we're all going to pass from this world and we and we wake up from it eventually and realize it never even happened. But the only things that happen to us are the things that are going to help us. You know, it's it's still, it scares me. I'm not by any means glib. I think part of the reason I talk about it is because I don't want to be blindsided either. Okay. So, any comments or questions before we go forward? Okay. So we'll, we're at number 375 for tonight. We're starting with. God cannot escape if you catch him in the net of divine meditation and divine service. One of these without the other, however, is spiritually dangerous. You need the balance. It's a really interesting phrase, spiritually dangerous. You know, um, I remember, it's partly because we're in such a restless age in such a restless country. I think divine service is always needed. But the balance between service and meditation in a rajasic place like America, Swamiji always said when he started Ananda, he had this idea that he would attract to him uh, a lot of hermits. He would he would live like a hermit, and then he would attract other hermits, and they would all have little hermit cottages, and, and you know occasionally they might come together for some reason, but mostly they would all just live in their little hermit cottages. And he said that plan was foiled. He said by this by the fact that God didn't send him any hermits. That was sort of the first clue he had that that wasn't going to work. But he says in America, it's just hermits are not, hermits are not, are you where you want to be? Okay. <laughs> um, that hermits are not, uh, in, in a rajasic country like America, hermits are not what's happening. He said, that, you know, India's more of a, he said in Indian ashrams, people can just be there and they don't feel the compelling restless needs to do something like we do in this country. <laughs> so it's also true that um, I think Master's giving advice generally because Swamiji wrote a little pamphlet. Uh, when would he have written? He wrote it about the early 80s, about 82 or 83. It's, it's a beautiful little pamphlet, and I think it's still around somewhere. It's called A New Dispensation. And, he, and in that he wrote many things. He it's only just a few pages, and he says, uh, he talks about attunement, but he also talks about long hours of meditation without a corresponding desire also to be in tune with the guru. He said he has not seen bring people the kind of spiritual benefit that they think it will. And long hours of meditation, he also writes there, without a corresponding desire to serve, um, tend to lead to spiritual pride. 
And that's why Master said, um, is spiritually dangerous. We, there was an example. There was an early resident of Ananda who um, meditated long hours. He was a very serious meditator. And, but he felt his long hours of meditation exempted him from any responsibility to the community. And in fact, he gradually began to think that we ought to support him because after all, he was meditating so much. But it, it didn't make him free. It made him arrogant. And that's what can happen because when, as Swamiji says somewhere else, he said, when you're proud of what you're doing spiritually, the problem is that's a real reason for pride. <laughs> it's not like being proud of being beautiful or being rich or something like that. When, you're, when you actually are meditating a lot, that's, that's real good, you know? So, so that's, it's harder to extricate. And that's part of the reason why um, service is required because otherwise, inadvertently, the ego can grow instead of not growing. So the path, and I remember, especially in the early years of Ananda, where people's idea of spirituality was romantic rather than actual and uh, people were overfed on philosophy and in many cases influenced by LSD experiences and LSD experiences can give you an experience of the transitory nature of this universe and everything can just dissolve into light and then you read in a book that everything is just light anyway and because you've had that actual experience drug-induced, but you've actually sort of seen everything dissolve into light, you become quite irresponsible about this world. And, and philosophy can get very confused among the reasons why drugs are not a good idea is that it's not a, it's not a spontaneous experience from the, the clearing of your chakras. It's just a kind of back door into a peek at something. It's, I don't know what the experiences really are. It's hard to say. But they tend... Um, prolonged use of those kinds of... Uh, prolonged exposure to those kinds of things tend to make people confused. Rather, and, and prolonged use of those people... So let me just actually put it in a simple context because at Ananda, in the early years, we had a lot of neighbors who were very much into psychedelic drugs or marijuana or whatever it was for a long time. So we actually got to see the, the long-term effect of our meditative life compared to the long-term effect of, of, of uh, chemical-based spirituality because a lot of it was, had a, a, a spiritual veneer. But we got to watch that over many years. And one just never saw radiance in those eyes. I remember at a certain point when I, I went and had, for some reason I had to have some prolonged interaction with one of our neighbors who was an habitual user of hallucinogenics and thought that that was their spiritual practice. And I said to Swami afterwards, Swami, there was just, you know, because it confused me. I couldn't quite put, put my finger on it. I said, there was just, there was no light. There was no light in this man's eyes. He was perfectly nice. It wasn't a disharmonious, but there was no light. And it was, it was in such stark contrast to the people at Ananda who were drug-free, which was one of our requirements, and not that they'd never had experiences because even Swami admitted, he said that that period, which is like only, only a few of you in the room are old, as old as I am to remember it, 
when in the late 60s when hallucinogenics came in and and if if you actually did have that experience it broke your it broke the hypnosis that this level of reality is the only reality and i mean i'll speak personally i mean i i never liked drugs because i like my brain and it wasn't that i i wasn't so much thinking of brain damage but I realized that every time I did anything, like a glass of wine or anything, well, I never drank a glass of wine, but I drank a, a beer every once in a while. It just made me dull. And I realized all I would do is wait for it to wear off. <laughs> you know, And the little bit I did with drugs, too. It was just like all I, I realized all I was doing was waiting for it to wear off so I could get back to myself. And I thought, I don't think this is really for you. <laughs> but uh, I had one experience where everything dissolved into light. And it was like, wow, look at that. You know, if you change your consciousness, everything is, I mean, it's just, it's just a matter of what level of consciousness you're on. And Swami really fiercely did not approve of drugs, but he had to admit that it, it catapulted a lot of people out of a conventional view of reality into a, a much more expanded one. I, let me think about how what the sequence was. No, I actually knew about the spiritual path. No, it was the opposite. It was the opposite. I had that I had that experience before I found the spiritual path. And that experience made me know what I was looking for. I was looking for or I was just I was just aware of the fact that that everything depended on your level of consciousness. And so that just that was the, that was the first that's interesting. I haven't thought about this in a long time, but that was the first uh, clue. That, that there was that that what I was looking for did exist, and then when someone finally handed me, which was about six, five months later, someone handed me a serious spiritual book by Vivekananda. It was instantaneous. I my, I suspect I would have taken it anyway, but that experience, the memory of that experience, um, certainly made me ready. That change consciousness, change everything. I remember just saying that, change your consciousness, you change everything. Everything is about your consciousness. When I was in college, I tried to get people to, you know, I tried to get my professors to talk to me about that, really. What was I thinking? What was, what was I smoking, you know? <laughs> Nothing much, I'll tell you. Okay. <laughs> yes, Joyce. Your examples about the man who meditated a lot but didn't really serve much and right. be part of the community, and then this explanation about people experiences, but it just reminds me there is no shortcut on a spiritual path. No, there is no shortcut. It's, it's just your own effort path. and grace yeah. of God. That's it. Yeah, I, I, uh, I would certainly share the shortcut if I knew it. Kriya, Kriya is the shortcut. Kriya and discipleship to Master. I mean, seriously, Master describes Kriya as the airplane route which is it's not exactly a shortcut, but it's a faster form of transportation than the ox cart. And he t- described his, his incarnation as a special dispensation, which is the closest we have to a shortcut. Um, Swami, I, I believe Swami talks about that in that little pamphlet, A New Dispensation, a little bit, about that the concentration of power that's here with these five avatars, because this is a changing age, and so there's a huge concentration of power at the present, yeah. But even to be attracted to this path and to draw these masters into your life meant that 
people had to put out effort even to get to this point, right? We've had very, 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 very good karma. I mean, I've actually just half-jokingly, but seriously, just think how many, how many incarnations of self-sacrifice, of, of who knows, serving the lepers in some God-forsaken place, or uh, years of penance in a cave, or I don't know what the picture is, but from, I'm just speaking for myself. I mean, for all of us, you, you, you don't get brought to a path as dynamic and as all-inclusive. Because it isn't, just Swam, it isn't just Master, it's what Swami did with Master's teachings. Because if, if it wasn't for Swamiji and we were devoted to Master, we would have to go to SRF, where we can go to church on Sunday. But if you don't want to be a monk or a nun there, you, you, have to live, you have to live an ordinary life and just go to church. And even within the monastic order, depending on your, your taste, you may or may not feel that that lifestyle, that style of monasticism, because after all, I'm a monastic too. We're, many of us are monastic, but we don't live that um, recognizable, Catholic-looking kind of monasticism, which is characteristic of SRF. It's, it, it's not that there's anything at all inappropriate or wrong about it, or as Swamiji said, it's beautiful and has its own, it has its own power and its own beauty. But what would I have done with myself there? That's sort of how I, I think about it. So it wasn't even only that I was drawn to Master, but I was drawn to Swami, who is so creative in his um, expression of Master's teaching and draws all of us into this, you know, this massively creative way of approaching it instead of, you know, obedience and alignment and that kind of surrender, that kind of monastic surrender, it's just the opposite with us. In fact, it's, it's overwhelming in many ways the uh, degree to which we have to take responsibility and we have to create our own reality within the context of, of Ananda and so on. So how many lifetimes did we have to put in before we ever get to this point? When I, I know in a, every time I've ever been to one of these... It happened to be, God knows, I think it actually was in Greece. It really doesn't matter where it was, but it was somewhere other than America. We went to, I went to some monastery, and uh, why would it have been Greece? It could have been because I had a lot of connection to parts of Greece. So that, but we were somewhere where there were these little stone rooms that were little old monastic rooms, little stone room with a little water spigot about, you know, 15 yards from the little stone room, and... I just loved it. I just went into that little stone room and I just sat there. I was just so happy. And I looked at that little water spigot and it just made me so happy. <laughs> just far from feeling like deprived. It's just like, I love this. When we went to Mother Teresa of Calcutta's place in, uh, in Calcutta, surprise, surprise, to her headquarters there. And... Uh, this was, we took these pilgrimage tours to India starting in 1986. And she, she was still living in 86. She was still living for a number of years, so we saw her a number of times. We would go to her headquarters. And the first time we went, I remember, in, I was the first, my first trip to India, too, or maybe the second, maybe, I don't remember, but it was, I wasn't that familiar with India. But there was this open courtyard. They had one of the big old Indian houses, and there was this open courtyard 
the way the houses are built around like this, the home is built around, multi-story where all the nuns live, some big old, what probably had been a multi-generational home. And the nuns, and, and this was a concrete open courtyard, and the nuns each had two of everything that they wore. So they had one on, and they were washing the other one in this bucket with, from the spigot, they were rinsing it out, and then they were going to hang it on the line so it would dry, so then they could put it on and wash the other one. And that's all they had. And again, it was these bare stone rooms. And you know, I just looked at it, and it was so familiar to me. And it, 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 I, seductive is not quite the word, but it was, it was like there was, there was, I just felt I could just do this. I've done this so much. And, you know, just like living in poverty with poor people to help poor people and just giving up everything you have. I, I'm, not, I'm not bragging because I don't feel it like that. It's just, was, it's just a very familiar lifestyle to me. And looking at it, I thought, well, that's how you earn this lifetime. You know, you just, many, many lifetimes of disciplined spiritual effort and gradually you get very good karma. Which is why, and I don't put this out as a warning, but it is sort of a warning. You can't just squander an opportunity like this. It's not like, oh yeah, well, I'll just get another one, you know. If I don't just, if I don't take advantage of this now, if I don't really serve now, if I just, you know, sort of don't feel like it and just go off and do my, old, my own thing now, you know, I'll just pick it up later. Not necessarily. Blessings like this, you, you, you get yourself to the point where it comes to you. And you, if, you, if you're fruitful and multiply with the blessings that come to you, then those who have will get more. Um, and those who squander and don't recognize what they have or don't uh, respect the blessing that's been given to them, unfortunately, it can also go away. It's just, it, again, those are not meant to be like frightening ideas. And, I, and it's definitely not meant to be, oh, I'm not doing enough, I'm not doing enough. That's not at all what I mean. It's just... Don't ever forget. I, I mean, I've, I've often said this, and I, again, I, I don't say this in any way to brag. This to me is just common sense. There hasn't been one minute, not actually not one, n- not one minute since I met Swami Kriyananda and, and even before that, but since I met him when I haven't been absolutely grateful for the opportunity. You know, it's just, and, and I've never not known what a privilege this life has been. I have been a stinker a lot of times and I haven't been able to live up to the promise of it. But that's quite different than actually thinking, well, you know, it's nice. There's lots of gurus. You know, if this one doesn't work out, I'll just go somewhere else. There's the marvelous one, which is way earlier in this book. You know, we're up to class 104, so God knows where it was in here. But where, remember where the monks in Mount Washington wanted to go to, they, they left Master because they heard that there were masters at Mount Shasta. <laughs> so they went up to Mount Shasta. But, you know, Master was, he didn't say, you fools. <laughs> he just said, that, that was when he said in the book, he said, there are no masters. There have been colonists, is what he said. Colonists, from where, from who? But he said, there's no masters there. But he also knew there were no masters there, but he knew. I mean, Mount Shasta is... Uh, is real. I mean, it has something going for it. That's how I feel about it, at least. But you wouldn't leave your guru to go to Mount Shasta. 
But people do it all the time. It's, you know, we see it less, it's, it's less dramatic in the church congregation where we live here in Palo Alto because, you know, we have an open, you know, our, our doors are open and a whole lot of people pass through. So it's, it's more like it just kind of inches toward uh, a core. But the, the experience of Ananda over decades, uh, at one point, um, actually it was part of the litigation, for some reason we had to turn in the name of any, everybody who'd ever lived at Ananda or something like that. And so we ended up having this compiled list. And it was actually really interesting because, first of all, the attrition rate is, at that time, if you think of the attrition rate, then, then Ananda was primarily Ananda village. So it was the people who got all the way to live at Ananda village. The attrition rate there was startlingly low at that point. It got bigger a little bit later, but it was startlingly low. And almost no one who left let me think how to say it. It was always obvious to me that they were holding back. There were, there were very few people who had come all the way to become a resident of Ananda village and be really dedicated to what we were doing who, who, who didn't just stay. And the ones who did leave, in almost all cases, there was always, I could always feel some just slight resistance. And so... It was understandable why they why they weren't able to hold. And again, that's not meant to be paranoid, um, because if you're self-honest, those things don't happen. You just are what you are, and and that's why it's it's much more important to be at peace with who you are than to be good at what you're doing. Because <laughs> if you're if you're at peace with what you are, you won't be tempted to wander away. It doesn't matter. I mean, this man meditated for hours and hours and hours. He meditated far better than I will ever be able to meditate in this life. But he's gone. And he, and he, he left in kind of a stink bomb way. He didn't even leave well. You know, it just... Um, because he wasn't honest about what he was doing. So if you're honest, if you're terrible, you're just terrible. <laughs> you know, it's so important to us but it's so unimportant to the gurus because you'll get it right sooner or later. Swami once said, gave me a little bit of advice and he said, you know, just do these core things. He said, and the way he put it was, everything else will follow. And then he said, in relatively short order, <laughs> which phrase I have contemplated a lot over the years. <laughs> that was advice he gave me about 1973 when I was always anguishing about my inadequacies. And he was trying to get me to calm down. Oh, everything else will follow in relatively short order. Relative to what? Relative to this incarnation? Relative to eternity? You know, like, <laughs> what are we really talking about here? It became sort of a joke in my own mind, and it still is. But, yeah, in relatively short order, it'll all straighten out. But if we create complexes, then we'll make a big loop and we'll have to just wander around for a long time. The most important thing is, I, there's this man at Ananda village, and there's no point in naming him, but he's had a really hard time in his life. He was kind of beat up when he arrived, like 30 years ago, and then after 10 or 15 years, he, he took a long journey out to get beat up a lot more, and then staggered back. But the darn thing is, he's still there. And, you know, and, and he, you know, he's certainly... Um, uh, He's, what do I want to say? You can see, you can see 
in his manner and on his face that he's been through a lot, but he's still there. You know, it's just like that's all that matters. He, he figured it out. He figured out that this is my lifeline and this is my guru and this is my path and this is my family. And, you know, nobody's getting rid of me. What was the, what was the story? Who, who, where was this? I'm trying to remember. Is it a story about master throwing some disciple out and the disciple just walking back in? Yeah, I think it is a story about master that he, he threw one of his disciples. I think Durgamata told it that story. Was that, is that correct? There's some story about master and some disciple he just threw the disciple out and the disciple just got got up and walked right back in. (laughs) Master just let him walk right back in. (laughs) Because, you know, the the master can't get rid of you. I love that part of it. He can't get rid of you. It's like, and he doesn't have the freedom to get rid of you. If you're committed, really committed, and, and once he's accepted you, which your commitment will draw that acceptance, he's stuck with you. Too bad. You know, you're just stuck with me. That's the way I am. Jerry Torgerson said to Master, I'm sorry, sir, that I'm so stubborn. And Master said, well, I attract stubborn people. (laughs) There you have it. All right. Number 376. The Master called me and two others into a separate room once and gave us the following instructions. When watching the breath, I've previously taught not to control its flow. I wanted to tell you today, however, that the flow may be controlled to this extent. Between each breath, try for that brief moment to deepen the sense of release you feel from the need to breathe. Gradually, by natural degrees, those pauses will increase in length. And then Master said, you may, if you like, teach the, te- the technique this way to others. It's just sort of interesting, isn't it? You don't know whether Master was, uh, well, he wanted that teaching to be preserved. He was also, you have to also realize that Master, you know, when he started in America, n- nobody had ever heard of anything that he was teaching. They, they um, Swami Ramatirtha came to America, I believe, at the very end of the 1800s. And he was here for a year or two. He, I don't know what moved him to come. He was a very great Swami. He's, he wrote the, uh, one of the really powerful chants that we sing, what's called Swami Ramatirtha's song. So, and he was just a, a, a really great yogi from India who, who felt guided by God to come to America. One of the really sweet stories about him is he just got on the boat and is coming across to America and they're coming into New York and this man, he's, you know, he's, he is so obviously not an American and he's not really of this reality at all. He's standing on the deck of the boat and they're coming into New York and so some American man starts conversing with him and asks him who he is and he he finds that he's just this sadhu from India who's just gotten on this boat to come to America because he felt guided by God to do it. And the man said, well, do you have any friends in America? And the man's, and, and uh, Ramtirta said, one. And this man said, who is that? And Ramtirta said, you. <laughs> and then, in fact, that man took him in and helped to sponsor his trip to America. I mean, you have to be sure before you set out like that, but that's really impressive. So Ramtirta was here for a while. I, I, the details of his life, I don't know. Um, Swami Vivekananda came uh, in the early 1900s. 
He spent a few years here. He traveled. He, was, he went all the way across the country. He was in San Francisco. He set up some ashram centers, but I think he was here maybe four years. I'm not exactly sure how long. He then brought some of his brothers over, a few of his brothers, um, centered the San Francisco, maybe Chicago, maybe New York. So there were a few of those swamis there. And then Master. So it wasn't like anybody had ever seen this before. So when Master gets up and tells you to repeat this mantra and follow your breath, and I mean, it's not like nobody in America had ever traveled to India, that nobody had ever seen an esoteric manuscript. I mean, there were, there were adventure travelers who brought some of this, but it was so, it was so esoteric, it's so little known in the, uh, in the play that uh, Christine Norfleet put together about meeting the masters, where she had several of the direct, she created these monologues from the things that the disciples had said. And she had a monologue for Dr. and Mrs. Lewis, who met Master in a small town in Massachusetts. And they, ta- and they, and you know, like, this is the East Coast in 1920 or 1921. And they're, you know, they're, they're not very broad-minded. It wasn't even California. <laughs> and uh, in, in the little square of their town, this character is walking along. And Master later started dressing in Western clothes. And he started knotting his hair up in a little bun. So he would look a little less exotic. But in that time, he just wore his orange robes everywhere and he wore his hair down. So this long-haired man dressed all in orange, you know, is walking across the, the square of their little New England town where they know everybody. And, you know, it just, it was absolutely beyond anything. And Mrs. Lewis, you know, he was a heathen. She just really didn't want everything to do with him at first. And so there's the whole story of how it, Dr. Lewis, Dr. Lewis had an immediate experience and recognized him. So all of these teachings were really new. And Master had to really find ways to inspire people to believe that it could really work for them. And of course, he had the capacity to give people experiences, even large auditoriums full of people. He, he could see his disciples in the room. There's a very sweet story about, uh, his name escapes me at the moment, but he was a humble devotee who became a disciple at Mount Washington. And... Uh, he, he saw Master at a lecture of 5,000 people, like in Boston. And 20, 20 years later, or 25 years later, he came finally to Mount Washington. Oliver Rogers, that was his name. And uh, when he finally came, uh, Oliver said, uh, you know, I saw you there. He said, I felt the whole evening that you were looking at me. And Master said, I remember. I mean, how many thousands of people had gone past him but he was his own. You, were, you would recognize your own son or daughter somewhere. You, you just would. And you would remember that you saw them. And that's how it was. It's like he saw him. He drew him. And then, and then it took Oliver all this time to get where he was supposed to, to, to be. But that contact held him like that. But Master was really working uphill. So the ability to expand on his own teachings to tell people how to go deeper and plus just the teaching itself Swami just puts it in here because often what happens also with something like that is um, people begin to discover it and so if you're if you're trying to be faithful to the way the technique is drawn but you have this inclination to to be in that moment 
he's also, I think for a lot of people, affirming what, what you yourself will discover and telling you that, yes, this is an affirmation of how you're supposed to be going. There's just so many subtleties to it and only so much of it can be expressed in words. And then after that, it just has to become how you live through it and what you begin to find for yourself. But let's take about five minutes break and then we'll come back. During the break, we were, uh, I was asked about my, my comment about um, the ability to serve, you know, the differences between the way SRF ex- uh, expresses itself and the way Ananda expresses itself. Um, let me think how to say this. You know, in time, I, God, God willing, you know, that, well, I don't know, actually, I'm not even going to make predictions about the future. It doesn't really make any difference. Um, they're, they're really fundamental theological differences. Um, and even though we can all worship the same master and all really uh, practice the same kriya and really be on the same path and really be gurubhais to each other, but the, the two institutions have basic theological differences. And the theological difference is, it's classic. It's not like we made it up. We're not, we're by no means the first two branches of one organization um, to ha- have something like this happen. You know, every um, every spiritual work seems to go through the same cycle. I'm told it happened in Buddhism. It certainly happened in Christianity. You know, for a time, there's only one because you have the master and he creates something and everybody's all together with the master. I heard Bob Raymer, who is a direct disciple of master, who's passed away now, commenting about the convocations, which are the annual uh, conventions that SRF has in Los Angeles and has been having for many years. When Master was living, Bob said, they were very, now 5,000 people come and it's in a big hotel and it's a big, huge, big organized conference. It was very different, he said. There were 75 or 100 people. He said, it was just a gathering of Master and his friends. You know, we were just all together doing it. And of course, that's kind of like the good old days of the golden era of something when it's just starting and it has all that freshness and no form. It's just held together by enthusiasm. Um, But what usually happens is there's one institution and over time, and then usually somebody who's key to that institution is either expelled or walks away um, by choice. And then all of a sudden, you have um, the second church of, (laughs) and whereas there has only been one church, and it never even had to call itself the first church of, it just was the church, suddenly you have the second church of, and so then this has to become the first church of, which it resents greatly having to do, because it's not the first church of, it's just the church, but it has to distinguish itself from the second, and there's usually some enormous theological difference between these two, and then it all follows after that, and that's exactly what happened with us. Swami was expelled from SRF and either was going to do nothing to serve Master. All doors within SRF were closed to him. So he was either going to do nothing or he was going to have to create his own way of serving. So his own way of serving naturally had to be based on his integrity as a disciple and not only his duty not only his right, but his duty to serve his guru in the way that he felt his guru was inspiring him to do, which, which presumes 
that an individual disciple acting all on his own is capable of receiving guidance and then acting on it. Well, that seems like a fairly fundamental premise, doesn't it? But an institutional model of, of spirituality is that authority is concentrated and then is uh, everybody else just acts in accordance with that authority. And that, you know, individual... Um, it's, it, I mean, it gets dicey because naturally everyone's supposed to be in tune with the guru, but um, it, too much individual self-expression, almost by definition, is not is not even possible. Because if it were, you have chaos. If you want to have obedience, you can't have both obedience and and the individual, the right of an individual to express his guidance as he sees it. They're they're just contradictory. So any institution that chooses obedience of necessity cannot also foster the, the freedom of the individual to act according to his own guidance. And then furthermore, when you have the first church and the second church and they get into an argument, the first church has to claim that the second church is invalid because the first church is the only place that valid authority can come through. And it just gets really complicated. So Swamiji, not not of necessity, but this is just what he believed, everybody is equal before God and has the same potential. That doesn't mean that everybody is equally wise and we don't need spiritual authority. But, But... Theologically speaking, the, you know, somebody walking in the door could, could be more an instrument of the guru than somebody who's been there 50 years. Because who knows? Everybody is, is really equal in their potential. And more than that, everybody has both a right and a duty to understand guidance in their own way and to express it. It's a very, it's a very tricky institutional model. The other one, the traditional one, is much easier to keep. And what, what happened with the first and ch- second church of self-realization, which is SRF and Ananda, is that Swami wasn't supposed to succeed. <laughs> he was supposed to not be able to do anything without the authority of the first church. And when he continued to s- succeed, the theological division became more and more rigid because he's not supposed to be able to succeed because all authority comes through this one source. So it's, it, it, it gets messy. And, it's a, and, and even if we're gurubhais practicing the same teaching and so on like that, the, the actual premise of our spiritual lives is quite different. And when I was trying to inspire SRF members to um, speak to their board of directors about the litigation they were um, imposing upon Ananda and all the all of the members' money they were spending on it, the, one of the responses I got was, well, if the board of directors thinks it's a good idea, then that's all I need to know. I said, well, it's your organization and it's, it's millions of, literally millions, it's millions of dollars of your money. Maybe you want to take a step. No, if they think it's right, then that's all I need to know. I said, huh. I said, well, at Ananda we're trained differently. You know, and I, that was, because I wasn't going to argue, there was no point. But yeah, at Ananda we're trained differently. You can't just say, if they think it's a good idea, I, I don't have to think about it. In fact, even more, I don't want to think about it. No, actually, I think you do. Because we're trained differently. And it's just sort of like, you, you don't get along well at Ananda if you just 
like try to find out what you're supposed to believe and try to believe it. What I've observed is it's, there's like a, a, an internal uh, turbulence within the organization that if you're not authentically engaged, something happens. <laughs> and it was very interesting to me. It's been interesting to me over 45 years to see how interesting that is. I watched it at Ananda Village when I was there for 16 years, then came here in 1986, and I was just curious as to whether or not it would replicate itself. And it has. It's just like there's a vibration that keeps you authentic. And if you're not really engaged, if you're just trying to find out who you're supposed to be and be it, rather than find out who I am and be it, then after a while something happens. And either you bust open and really get engaged, or you get drawn away. It just depends on a person's karma. There's, a, there's what, I, what I've come to call a magnetic honesty about it. So, I mean, I don't worry too much when... I used to be more, much more anxious about everything. <laughs> but uh, I, I'm not concerned when, when I see people who have uh, a misunderstanding about what they're supposed to be doing. Because either they'll straighten it out or they weren't, won't. It's not, you know, it's like, and I, I just, I, I mean, I'm equally supportive of everyone, but I just wait. I just wait to see. And, you know, many people just, it, it begins to communicate itself to you and you begin to figure out what you're supposed to do. So the other part of it just, uh, I was saying this during the break, but it's worth putting on recording here. When Swami Kriyananda was expelled from uh, SRF, his nemesis was this woman named Taramata. And Swami often commented that he and Taramata, who was a very advanced disciple, and Master Swami said a genius in many ways, you know, and he, he, he really respected and admired her. Um, the difficulty was, he said, they had entirely different concepts of, of what master, Master's work should be. Swami's idea was, this is fantastic. We need to tell everybody. We need to get everybody involved and we need to tell everybody. You know, how can we serve? How many can we serve? What can we do? You know, and he, he was, it was, as he said, a volcano of creative ideas of just how to make things happen, which Master was like that too. You know, Master had those vegetarian cafes. And, you know, you've seen this little picture of this little cafe there with this huge mushroom burgers, it says across the top. I mean, like... It's, it's on a certain level, it was just so wacky. But he was just like mushroom burgers. Let's teach people about vegetarianism. And when you look at the old SRF magazines, there's, you know, he had a, a goat dairy, he had a carrot juice farm, he had a papaya grove, he had a flower business. He created meat substitutes. And during uh, the Second World War, um, he, they, they had a, like, they made these meat substitutes out of gluten, he was the one who, who who invented a lot of those recipes that the Loma Linda Company he gave them to Loma Linda Company, and they manufacture them. And the monks would deliver, hand deliver, because Master heard that meat was going to be rationed, and he had this thought: all those meat eaters, what will they do? That was how he described it. So he had this inspiration that you could extract the gluten from flour, and then you could flavor it, and it would it would have the texture and the satisfaction of meat. So he created this whole business. Plus, he always needed money. So he created this whole business of meat substitutes because meat was being rationed. I mean, like, he didn't have... He didn't just sit there and chant Om. 
and tell people to do Kriya. I mean, he was, he was creative all over the place. His, his uh, lecture topics, my favorite one is, let's see, you know, super conscious healing by the Swami, all diseases can be cured, bring your sick friends. <laughs> that bring your sick friends <laughs> but uh, let's see now where was that but so if you try to bring this teaching to a lot of people you're going to be out there cooking mushroom burgers and you're going to be cooking mushroom burgers for truck drivers who just wander in off the street and you're going to give them a little joy and you're going to do your best and they're going to go away thinking that a, that master's teaching is a mushroom burger and or if you you know uh, give them carrot juice. They'll, they'll think that Master's teaching is drinking fresh juice. And people will say, yeah, I know, I know SRF. Yeah, I go, I go there and get mushroom burgers all the time. I know that, I know that place. And now, Swami thinks, well, you attract them with what you can attract them and then you just give them more and you'll dr- gradually, some of them will get drawn in and some of them will just get mushroom burgers. But you just, you just reach out and you see what you can do and you do your best. And, if they think that mushroom burgers is all that you have, that's no problem because you, you know what you have. It doesn't matter if they define Yogananda as a mushroom burger maker. It, it doesn't hurt master if they do that. It's just their loss. It's not his. Now, Taramata's idea was that the teaching is the sacred responsibility and that the public actually, by their shallow understanding if they're allowed to get too involved, are going to just misinterpret it and make a mess of it. And pretty soon, the teachings will be diluted and confused by all of these people who don't understand it. So we have to protect the purity of what we're doing from letting those people get too involved. So thus, you have a very top-down organization in which the people who are supposed to know tell everybody what's supposed to happen. And you come to believe that that's how the guru wants you to behave because they're speaking in the name of the guru. So I don't complain, I don't object if the board of directors thinks that suing Ananda for 12 years and spending $50 million on it is a good idea. If they think it's a good idea, it's okay with me because it all has to be top down. They're not trained to make the teaching their own and to think about it. They're, they're trained in the opposite direction. So only those who are monastics can teach. Even those who are center leaders, there's strict guidelines about what they can do. You know, only certain notices could be on the board. I mean, a friend of mine currently in Brazil, there's, there was some kind of a little um, network of, pe- of devotees in Brazil, SRF devotees all talking to each other. This is, he just told me this story recently. And uh, there's apparently some, there was, I don't, of course I don't follow Brazilian politics, but like everywhere in the world, there's extremes in the political system and some some person was elected and there's a lot of tumult, like welcome to 2019, planet Earth. And so they were discussing on this little SRF group thread, he said in a very measured way, they were discussing the politics. They actually got a memo from Los Angeles telling them that it was an improper use of the disciples a chat group. I mean, it, because 
you know, Master had certain points of view, and if people are allowed, in the name of SRF, to do things that are too far outside of that, pretty soon the whole, the whole edifice is going to crumble. It's just a wholly different, just two different ways. I mean, I, there, there is, you know, absolute self-surrender to spiritual authority and turning your, your mind away from everything else and allowing yourself to be defined by wise spiritual leaders is actually also really wonderful. But it isn't always wonderful. I mean, I remember when I was a nun in Ananda, first 10 years, thinking to myself, gosh, if I were in a traditional monastery, I was just thinking past life memory and also, because there I was, I was a young woman as, and I'd entered this monastic life, intending to stay there the rest of my life. It was a long and different cycle, but um, we were, you know, like 10 women. We were living a much more traditional, within the context of Ananda, which was not at all traditional but I was thinking, if I were a Catholic, if I were entering a Catholic world, I would, be able to, I would be able to pick a date 50 years in the future and know exactly what I'd be doing on that day, in the sense of if it was one of those monasteries where there was a routine that you just followed. You know, a missionary would have been different, or even a school teacher, but contemplative where, you know, on this holiday we do this, on that holiday we do that. I just, and I, I, I would ask myself, you know, I could, I could feel how wonderfully freeing that would be because I would, I would just know that all I had to do was think about God. There was nothing else that I was going to ever have to think about. I just would needed to follow the pattern and think about God. And that there was a, a I could feel, and I, I think I also could sort of remember how powerful that life could be. And by contrast, the life I was living at Ananda was just fraught with uncertainties and, and constant, a constant challenge to my capacity to be creative and come up with something new. I mean, it was just night and day. So you see different realities for different people. But, but those are big divides. Those are really big divides. And they can be bridged by goodwill. As Swami always said, you know, the more we meet heart to heart, the less any of this will matter. But that doesn't mean it doesn't exist. And uh, we have to not be naive about it. The book that I, I'm about to publish about Swamiji, um, now that I've been talking about this so much, um, you know, the SRF story in relation to Ananda has really been backburnered since Dayamata died and Swami died because the it was not personal, but, but the karma of it was focused in individuals who are now off the planet. Meaning, it was more than personal. It wasn't, there were real issues there. It was not a personal feud. Just like he said about Tara. I really liked her, I really admired her, but I knew someday we would clash. Because we, we stood for two completely opposite points of view. And Swami was vice president. It wasn't like he was just some underling. You know, she was senior to him, she'd been with Master longer, but they were peers in the work, except for her seniority. So it wasn't like Swami had no right to have an opinion. He was very influential. But he said, I knew inevitably we would clash because we were just on opposite sides of it. But it was their ideas that would cause them to clash. Um, So, let's see, what was I saying? Oh yes, 
So when I started writing this book, I thought, well, this has been backburnered. People, most people don't even talk about it very much. I talk about it much more than most people do. People are just forgetting it. Everybody just wants to be friends. Let's just be friends. Let's forget the past. So I start writing this book, and I'm thinking like, I mean, you know, in theory, when I was working on it, what am I going to do with this? Because it's not a pretty story. And, I, you know, who wants to bring up a not pretty story? So this book is chronological. So it starts in uh, the first chapter is 1969 to 1971. Every other chapter is a single year. But I, I needed to meet Swami and move to Ananda. So I had to get through, you know, the first part. So then I finished with 71 and I'm about to start 72. In 1972, Swamiji goes back to India at the end of 1972 in November. And it's the first time he's been back to India since he was expelled from India and SRF in 1962. So the whole story of him going back to India, which is an enormously important and moving story and had all these implications, is right there. I mean, like, I've just barely started the book. And all of a sudden, I realize I have to stop right now and give this whole history because Swami's life does not make sense unless you know it. So it just, so I end up with this thing just weaving all the way through the entire book. I just, it goes right from the beginning to the end because it did. And I, and I, my first time through, because I had all these files and it would take me a week, literally, and that's literally a week to figure out each year because I had just all this paper from 45 years of taking notes. And I never wanted to have to open those files again. <laughs> I never wanted to doubt whether I had all the information that I needed. So in the first draft, I, I just included everything that might be useful because I, I wanted to be able to work from my own draft. I didn't want to have to go back and open the files again. So it was more detailed. When I finally, you know, honed the book down, I pulled out everything that I could pull out and still have the story have integrity, which was a lot. There was a lot of detail that just wasn't required, repetitious or gratuitous detail. But still, there was just no, no way around it. And I've actually had this serious thought in my mind. I wonder if someday somebody will want to suppress this book. You know, and I, you know, because they'll, they'll not want this story to be told. I mean, that would be long after I'm gone. So I don't know. But it's an extraordinarily important story, not because of SRF and Ananda, but because it's the entire story of religious works in the world forever. It's the institutional versus the individual model. And... We, we perfectly exemplify the two choices. And people need to understand that there are two choices. So they can recognize that it doesn't... Because, I mean, look at the Catholic Church. It just, it, it just runs this story. And, I mean, now it's losing its power. But for centuries, it was just the way it was. Finally, Luther rebelled against it. But it's, it's, it's a very important... Uh, and, you know, are we a path of, of individual self-realization or are we the Catholic Church of Dwapar Yuga? Really, they're, 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 
you very serious questions. Master said, self-realization has come to unite all religions. And uh, Swami said directly to Dayamata, he can't possibly have meant that Self-Realization Fellowship Church, Inc. has come to unite all religions. And Dayamata said, well, that's your opinion. And Swami said sort of like, can there actually be another opinion? But apparently there is. So there you have it. And these are sincere people. It's not, it's just, they just have a different take on it. And it's not even so much that they will try to oppress us is that we ourselves will start following that path. No, seriously, I've been involved in colony leader meetings recently. We had some serious issues to work out. Just, you know, anyway. So you're, you're sitting right there and, and the phrase comes up, how could we prevent this from ever happening again? Oh, well, we could make rules, couldn't we? You know, we could make rules something has come loose so we could make rules to prevent it from ever coming loose again. I mean, that's just what you do. That's what the mind wants to do. And then you think, no, I don't think so. So we came up with more Swami-esque solutions, you know, where ideas, certain ideas need to be more clearly communicated, you know, a little bit more needs to become explicit, but you, you can't make, you can't make rules. You can't, Make rules against it. That's what people do. Well, this so-and-so leader really misbehaved in this way, so from now on, this is only what leaders are allowed to do. And, you know, it's just, you just, you can't do that because you're dead before you start. You might as well, I mean, you're right, it won't ever happen again, but a whole lot of other stuff will never happen again either. So Swamiji did, and from my point of view, he did the best possible job he could do to ensure the vitality of what he'd started for as long as possible. Anand is a, a, actually what I think is a brilliant blend of respect for spiritual authority and individual autonomy, organizationally. And it will last a certain time, and then it won't, because we'll get wealthier, we'll get more comfortable, and we'll start attracting a different kind of person. I mean, that's already happened. You know, the, 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 the chaotic pioneer freedom that I enjoyed. I and mean, look at this building. Look at us. I mean, we have a building. We come into this big building so people think that we exist. That's how I always sort of feel. Like, <laughs> yeah, I mean, but we don't. Because if we don't, we, all we are is our spirit. We either are an inspiring, alive opportunity to feel closer to God or we're not. And having a building does not make you an inspiring, alive opportunity to know God. Having this building has allowed us to do a lot of things that have given people the experience of being an inspired, alive opportunity to know God. We can do incredible things because there's so much room in here and it's so beautiful, which would be harder to do if we didn't have this building. But it's not because we have the building. It's because of what we do inside of it. But because it's here, people think we're actually here. <laughs> I don't know how else to say it. <laughs> Do you understand? They mistake the form for the reality. So, I mean, I, I, I don't mind if things are a little messy sometimes. I don't like it to be too buttoned down. You know? But I think, I think we've got a few generations. I think we'll last for a few generations. And then who knows? Because all of our history is from Kali Yuga. We don't know what happens in Dwapara Yuga Rising. 
so I'm optimistic. Okay, is that enough? There we went completely somewhere else. So tonight we covered number 375, 376, and that was it. It's like I don't want to finish this book, so I just keep, I just keep dragging my feet ever slower and ever slower.